This preaching series is based on a section of the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. This letter is not a letter to a church. There is no Galatia church. It is a cluster of churches in the region known as Galatia. Galatia was originally home of the ancient civilization of the Hittites. But in the 3rd century B.C., came to be occupied by the Gallic Celts, hence its name Galatia. Interesting to think about this. When you hear the word Celt or Celtic, what do you think of? Ireland. They went there too. But they came from Central Europe, and they ended up going to a lot of places and occupying the space. Galatia in the Bible was an area in the highlands of what today is Central Turkey, Let me give you just a little direction as to what's happening here. This whole region is current Turkey. All of this. Galatia is this section right here that runs all the way from the Black Sea almost down to the Mediterranean. That's Galatia. And this area I'm going to talk about in just a moment to set the context for what we have. If you want to go to Jerusalem, go down to the drum set. That'll get you to Jerusalem, just to give it a little background for you as to where these things are. And I feel so comfortable today because I have a, I have a pointer in my hand. <laughs> it's a guy thing. You guys know this, right? We get home, what do we do? We find this, and we're happy the rest of the day. <laughs> I'm going to leave it there. It's in the southern region of Galatia that Paul and Barnabas traveled on their first mission trip specifically establishing the churches of Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Derbe, and Iconium. You'll find that in Acts 13 and 14. In fact, we find that Paul visited this region on every one of his three mission trips recorded in the book of Acts. And just prior to the Jerusalem Council, which is in Acts chapter 15, which was held in 49 A.D., Paul writes a letter to the churches in Galatia that he had planted. If you turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, or if you use a pew Bible, page 1154, that's where we'll begin to look at Scripture today. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul is telling these people at this point not to be enslaved to religious tradition that has no value for what God intends for his people. Is there something wrong with religious tradition? Not really, unless it replaces the principles of the teaching of Jesus the Christ and the Holy Scriptures. We need to base our lives on the principles of the gospel, not the preferences we may have out of our own tradition and experience in the life of the church. Look to the last sentence now in verse 6, where he writes, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's the only thing that counts. Everything else is a bonus or an extra or an add-on, and it may not be bad. It may be wonderful and a great experience for people. But here's what counts. Faith expressing itself through love. Clearly, Paul has taught and now writes that love is the centerpiece. It's the artesian well 
out of which our faith springs. His concern, beginning in verse 7 of this chapter 5 of Galatians, is that some have made their traditions, their preferences, of more important, importance than God's principle of love. His message is that they have been set free from forms and set free to love. Love is what God values. Love is what God intends for his people. Nothing else. He intends love for us. Just in case the people aren't tracking with him, Paul reveals the character of the flesh and the character traits of the spirit. He refers to these character traits as fruit. They were an agricultural society. They understood this. And he writes, the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, and here Paul is writing about the Holy Spirit himself and about the Holy Spirit in the life of believers in Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. While some have taught through the centuries that this is a list of behaviors, I'm convinced otherwise. For me, this is a description of character traits based on the core trait of Jesus, which is the trait of love. And because Jesus is in the life of all who believe in him, our core trait is also to be love. And Paul has been preaching and writing and teaching and planting churches all over the Mediterranean basin on this principle, love. For the sake of clarity and consistency, throughout this preaching series, I liken this core trait of love into the metaphor of a diamond. Love is the precious jewel of the character of God and his son, Jesus. I believe that each of the other traits make up the facets of the diamond of love. They are expressions of love. The core trait is love. As early as Moses in the Old Testament, we find God's character and expectation to be love. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. A generation in Hebrew thought is 40 years. So a thousand generations is how much? Oh, you're shy. How much is it? 40,000 years. It will outlive us all and our offspring and theirs and theirs, 40 generations of them. King David writes of God's love throughout the songbook for worship of the Hebrew nation. In Psalm 36, verse 7, we read, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God, People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. People are safe with God. They seek the shadow even of his wings, the protection of the Father. In the New Testament, we find in John's gospel that Jesus is having a nighttime discussion with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. I refer to this section of John's gospel as Nick at night. The conversation ends and then John writes these words. 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Why? Because he so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal, abundant, complete life because of the love of God. After years of reflection, John writes this in 1 John chapter 4. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The apostle Paul was so convinced of this love that he wrote in his letter to the young church in Rome that he was looking forward to visiting. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You can't get away from his love. Even if you try, he still loves. He's a lover. The Bible is very clear. The core trait of God God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is love. God declared it. Jesus showed it. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be it. That's the whole gospel. The facet now of love that we look at today is the facet of joy. Once again, we turn to the writings of the Apostle John. He quotes Jesus in chapter 15. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Overwhelmed with it. John 15, 10 through 11. Jesus intrinsically ties God's love for people to their joy. When you know you're loved, it puts a smile on your face. Dogs get this. You can have a dog in your house for five years. They've come to know every movement that you make. You go out to get the mail, and when you come back through the door, they go crazy with excitement because you're there. They get it. God's looking for that with us, empowering us to be like that to wag it all over because we are filled with the love of Jesus Christ within us. I've been told at times I'm like a dog. I take it as a compliment even though it wasn't given that way. One of my favorite texts from the Old Testament reveals this reality. The people of Israel are being severely persecuted. They're under the serious threat of genocide at the hands of an evil man in Susa. God miraculously intervenes through this kind of no name, but we, become, we get to know him in the Old Testament, named Mordecai, and a young, beautiful Jewish girl named Esther. The Jews, because of the way God works through these two people, are spared. Listen to what Mordecai writes after God delivers his people from Esther chapter 9. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar 
as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and give presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. They were to be excited. God had redeemed them and set them free from what was a certain peril in their lives. They were all to have been killed. We all deserve to die. According to God's law, we all deserve to die, unless you haven't sinned. Do we have a non-sinner in the crowd? There isn't one. And God has declared that's the way it is. And yet Jesus comes and sets us free, which is why every Sunday is an Easter day. Even during the season of Lent, which is very lamenting and, and focusing on our need for repentance, Sunday is not included in the days of Lent. Sunday is a day of celebration. It's a day of excitement. And we do it well here all year round. And then we go to feasting and smiles in the gathering place because this is how God wants it for us. This is his intention. Joy is found throughout the Bible. And in a number of great number of places, it's in conjunction with love and joy. It's a facet of God's diamond, joy is. The problem with joy is that most people are not born with it. There's two kinds of people in the world. I do not have empirical data on this. This is a Craig study. Two to three people out of every hundred wake up in the morning and say, Good morning, Lord. Ninety-seven out of ninety-eight people out of a hundred wake up in the morning saying, Good Lord, it's morning. (laughs) Joy is not a natural thing for human beings. It must be cultivated. And why does joy matter? It matters for the work of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that has one mission, to seek, save, and win lost people to God through Jesus Christ. Your joy level matters for that to happen. First, Joy largely determines whether other people are attracted to Jesus Christ or not. Have you ever been drawn to someone? I haven't. I wonder what's going on. I may go up to them and say, are you okay? Because their look is not okay. Because of what Christ has done in my life. And I project Christ wants to do that in their life as well. Joy largely determines whether other people are attracted to Jesus Christ or not. Secondly, joy will affect the atmosphere of your home and probably more than anything else will determine whether your kids or your grandkids are attracted to Jesus. It's how Jesus gets duplicated in the lives of other people. People are attracted to joyful people. Okay, I'm not talking about over-the-top, wacky, crazy joy. I'm talking about regular old everyday joy, pleasantness, a smile. You get the sense of, wow, I want, that's, I like that. It does a lot to determine how people are drawn to Jesus and how our children and grandchildren experience and grow up in life. Youth work, I remember 14 years I was a youth pastor 
watching joyful parents versus grouchy, unhappy parents or grandparents. And a lot more work needed to be done with the children of the people who were unhappy and grouchy. The quickest way to destroy a marriage, the quickest way to destroy a business, the quickest way to destroy a church, the quickest way to destroy a friendship, the quickest way to destroy your own children is cultivating and expressing a negative, pessimistic, and complaining spirit. It's the weed that must be rooted out of our lives. And note, none of those things are on the Spirit's fruit list. In fact, it's just the opposite. George and Grace had just married. In fact, this was their wedding night. He had reserved a very fancy hotel with a bridal suite, great rooms, sofa, fireplace, but they noticed there was no bed. That seemed odd. Well, there was a sofa bed. That seemed also odd. They had a fitful night of sleep. In the morning, George goes to the desk to complain to the manager. He gives him a piece of his mind, and it's not a good piece, it's a strong piece, and it's a quite harsh piece. The manager asked, did you open the door? George says, you mean the other closet door? Well, no, we had the closet. Go back and open the other door, you'll see. So George kind of begrudgingly left the room, thought he was being shoveled off, went back and he opened the other door and there he found a phenomenal bedroom, a king-sized bed, a dozen roses, and a box of chocolates. Then he realized we had everything all the time. It was always there. All we had to do was open the door. Life is like that. Living with joy is like that. God has given us everything we need to live with joy. Everything. All we have to do is open the door. There is no better place or section in the Bible on joy than Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Now, some might be saying, and I've had people say this to me before, don't tell me about joy. They say it like that, too. Don't tell me about joy. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know my finances. You don't know the pressures I face at work, at home, at school. You don't know how my wife is with me. You don't know what my husband behaves like. You don't know what my children are doing. You ever heard any of those or said any of those? Paul wrote this book to the Philippians. While in a dark and moldy prison, chained to a Roman guard, awaiting trial and possibly his death, These were the darkest days of his life, and yet in those circumstances, he writes, rejoice always, always. This morning, I'd like to open for you five doors that will, for you who follow Jesus, give you a transforming makeover into a person of great joy. I'm not doing long on any of these, but there are five. Hang with me. We're still okay, time-wise. Genuine joy springs from opening the first door by trusting God in all circumstances. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out onto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what he starts so we can trust him. And you can read story after story of God finishing what he starts in the Bible, Old and New Testament. 
Paul is discovering that God will finish the work begun in his life and ministry. Paul wants to evangelize the entire Roman Empire. He wants to rent the Colosseum and have a crusade. Instead, he comes in chains and ends up in prison, chained to this guard, a Roman guard. But Paul stays focused, and he evangelizes the guards. And this permeates the house of Nero, and God finishes what he starts. Paul also ends up in prison to make Paul stop long enough to write. And because of that, we have much of the New Testament today. Paul was brought to those places so he could do the work God wanted him to do, so God could finish what he started. May the, hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. Look at what Paul writes. May you be filled with all joy and peace as you trust. It's conditional. Trust him. He's doing his work. Continue working for him and alongside of him. Secondly, joy springs from opening the second door by releasing all regrets about my past. A guy sent a check to the IRS with back taxes and this note, I feel so guilty about cheating on my taxes that I'm sending you this check. P.S. If I don't feel any better soon, I'll send you the balance. (laughs) Guilt and regret never help you to deal with the past. Guilt and regret doesn't do any work for the past. It accomplishes nothing. Guilt and regret never help you deal with the future. You just carry a bag load of it with you into it. Guilt and regret only affect the present, and they make you miserable. We need to release our regrets. How does Paul deal with his guilt? He was a guilty man, you know, complicit in a murder early in his life. He writes in Philippians, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. God's forgiveness is complete. Believe it. Believe it. The door of releasing regrets about our past. Genuine joy springs from opening the third door by understanding the the power of prayer, or I would even better say expressing, getting into the power of prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. This verse tells us worry is limiting and destructive. Replace it. There's three important connections to understand about prayer. The first is there is a connection. Prayer connects us with God. He is the source of power. Second, prayer gives us direction. As we listen in prayer, by the way, prayer is more listening than it is talking. As we listen in prayer, God gives us direction. He shows us the way. The best prayer I've ever learned to pray is, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then be quiet and wait. And third, connecting to prayer, getting direction by prayer, shows us that we are protected. As we obey God's direction, he protects and he strengthens us for the days that are ahead. Genuine joy springs from the opening of the fourth door, serving instead of sulking. 
Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It was used for God's glory. Instead of sulking, he served. Instead of being poor me, he shared the love of Christ with those around him. How often do we get entrapped by sulking? I've never seen such turnaround in the lives of people who are sulkers when they realize there's a way for this to change your life. Let's pray about God's help in turning this into serving. And serving is contagious. It spreads not only goodwill, it also reproduces itself in others. In 109 AD, the Romans built an aqueduct in Spain to bring cool mountain water into the city. And for 1,800 years, it put a modern, it brought cool, clear mountain water. Then in the early 1900s, they put in a modern water system and shut down the aqueduct. They honored the aqueduct. They built a museum of its construction and its history. They celebrated it. But they noticed over time it was beginning to fall into disrepair. Because the water had stopped flowing, the sun dried out the mortar, and it began to crumble. For 1,800 years, it had served the community well. But when it dried up, it dried out, and it fell apart. Service in our lives is like that aqueduct. We were made to serve. That was the intention from our creation. When we fail to serve, we dry up, we dry out, and eventually we fall apart. Because God's nature is not flowing through us. The nature of his love, the facet of joy, and the behavior of service. Serving is rewarding. It produces joy. And I'm so excited this church does service and has made service one of the two priorities as we move forward. More involvement in service in our community here in Greater Berlin. Genuine joy springs from opening the fifth door of thanksgiving. Paul writes again in Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Thanksgiving is healthy. It spreads joy. Let's express it. Paul started many churches. Nearly every one of them had problems, and in some cases, very serious problems. Yet Paul was always able to express thanksgiving for something in the life of the church. To the church in Thessalonica, he writes, I thank God for your love. To the church in Corinth that gave him fits, he writes, I thank God for your generosity. To the church in Rome, which he only hoped to visit, he writes, I thank God for your faith. Over and over in every letter, we see him expressing thankfulness to these churches, imperfect as they were, imperfect as we are. We have much to be thankful for. A quick, easy review to remember this. 
choose to read Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. I challenge you to read it every day this week. It will take you 12 to 13 minutes to read it. Allow the Holy Spirit to begin to cultivate joy in your life as you read Paul's letter of joy. And for those of you who like an extra challenge, read it every morning and every night. You won't believe what you will discover. Second, open the doors of joy. Trust God in all circumstances. Remember, God finishes what he starts. Release all regrets about your past. God's forgiveness is complete. Believe him. Understand the power of prayer. Worry is destructive. Replace it with prayer. Serve instead of sulk. Serve is rewarded by producing joy. Let's give it a try. Thanksgiving. Gratitude is healthy. Express it. Open these doors and you will experience an extreme makeover of the Holy Spirit that will produce joy in your life based on the love of God that's been given to you since the day you were born from above. And that will put a smile on your face because joy is love smiling. Let us pray. Oh God, Help us to be overwhelmed by the love that you give us, which is overwhelming. And then produce in us this facet of joy and all that it means for how your love is lived and expressed and shared with the people around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.